All right, Job chapter 38. We settle in? All right. All right, so we've come to the place in the book where God speaks, and that's kind of what we've been waiting for, right? All these chapters, we've been waiting for this chapter. We've been excited about this, anticipating this. But before we dig in, we need to put this in perspective yet once again. We need to remember what's happened here. And it's been a while. Some scholars actually believe months may have passed here. Months. Can you imagine? Months. It's been months already. I know it's been months that we've been doing this. You've been listening to the book of Job. But I think it's been almost that long since the tragedy happened. The tragedy that took his seven sons and his three daughters. The tragedy that caused him to lose his business and his standing within the community. He was a well-respected, well-loved man in the community. And all of that ended on the same day. A tragedy that made him now repulsive to his wife and to the children of the city that he once helped, that he actually championed. They despise him now. He's been stricken with painful boils that have become infected from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. We forget about that, right? That this guy's in physical pain as well as emotional pain. He's endured days, maybe months, of accusations from the three comforters. And I hate air quotes, but it's very appropriate here. He's been challenged by the advice of Elihu. And he's questioned all along why this has happened to him. I mean, he's saying in his heart, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I've helped others. I do the right thing when other people around me are doing the wrong thing. Job was a good guy. I mean, even God stuck up for him. God said that he was the most righteous in all the land. You know, I heard a pastor say the other day that we ask why bad things happen to good people. And we ask the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? And that really put it in perspective for me. Because we're all sinners, deserving of death. That's what we deserved. But God in his mercy and grace didn't give us what we deserved, death. He gave us what we do not deserve, his son Jesus Christ. Job was not perfect. He was a sinner, the same as you and I are sinners. But being a good guy, even being declared righteous by God, didn't give him some special place in God's kingdom. God didn't look at him as one of his special children. He didn't gain favor because he was declared the most righteous in the land. Because listen, without any of us, without the blood of Christ, we would bear the same fate of every other unrepentant sinner. Eternal separation from God. So we're not that special either. Matter of fact, as we're going to learn here in a little while, we're just dirt. Just clumps of dirt sitting in them seats. I always like to think of that once in a while. I like to remind you of that. So it just kind of humbles you and keep us all in perspective. We're just dirt. We're sinners saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So we're not that special. Now, in the beginning, Job's faith seemed to be strong, didn't it? It seemed to be unshakable almost. Job's, the first thing out of his mouth was, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But of late, in these last few chapters, his faith almost seems like it's wavering a little bit. 
like he's he's questioning God. He's 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 complaining to God about his fate and what's happened to him. So Job even begins to think that God's his enemy, that God it despises him like everyone else in the city does. So he calls out to God, and he asks God to show himself so that he could have a trial. So remember that, when that whole conversation, he wanted to stand trial, he wanted to, to present his case to God so he could be declared innocent, so God could see that he was innocent? Job said, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, talking about the judgment seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Well, Job is about to get what he asked for. Sort of. Sort of. Remember at the end of Elihu's speech? The storm. The storm was raging. Many scholars believe that it was through that storm that Elihu actually wrote what he wrote. That storm that described the power and the majesty of God. And, and he basically said to Job, is this the God that you want to question? Is this the God, that, the almighty God that you want to stand before and, and stand before his judgment seat? And, and you want to go to trial before almighty God? And so Elihu was kind of saying, you better rethink this, Job. You better think long and hard about what you're asking because what do we say? Be careful what you pray for, right? And you may just get it. So before Job can even answer Elihu, God comes to Job through that storm in a whirlwind. God comes to Job, not, to, not for a trial. There's no trial being held here. He's not going to answer many of Job's questions. In fact, he has some questions of his own for Job. So let's dig in. Look at verse, chapter 38, verses 1 through 2, and we'll just be in 38 today. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So the first question Job asks God is, Who is this? Who is this that you should question my wisdom? Who is this that you should question my wisdom when you really have no knowledge of me at all? And God's going to remind Job through these next couple chapters, who's in control, who's sovereign, that God's works are beyond Job's understanding. And listen, we're all in the same spot as Job, aren't we? His works sometimes are just beyond our understanding. And because of that, God's not here to answer Job's questions. He's here to ask a few of his own. And I think we all have questions that we would like God to answer, don't we? For me, I mean, my question is deep and profound. Why, Lord, on, the, on this blessed earth that you created, did you make mosquitoes? That's my question. You know, a journalist and a poet named Christopher Morley puts this in perspective for us when he writes, I had a million questions to ask God. But when I met him, they all fled my mind, and it didn't seem to matter. You know, when we meet God face to face, we're going to be so overwhelmed by his Shekinah glory that we're going to forget any questions that we might have for him. I don't know if I'll forget the mosquito question because I'm traumatized by that. But listen, we're going to quickly realize that in the context of heaven and eternity, the sense of awe that we're going to have in his presence, we're going to be so overwhelmed by that that, 
our questions, all these questions that we say we're going to ask God, just won't matter. Look at verses 3 and 7, 3 to 7 rather. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. I don't think Job heard that second part. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the, time, stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he's talking about the angels there in that part. So, God comes out of the whirlwind out of this storm, and there's times, listen, there's times when that's the only way God can get our attention, isn't it? In the midst of a storm. Sometimes he has to come to us like that in the midst of our trial, in the midst of a storm in our life, so that he gets our attention. I don't think God has our attention any more, we're not any more intently than when we're going through a trial. And so he gets our attention sometimes in the midst of that storm, not only get our attention, but for us to finally listen, listen to his voice. So he's got Job's attention now. And he asked Job, are you ready? Are you ready for this? You've been asking for this. You've been praying for this. Are you ready for this? Are you prepared? Have you studied up? Because it's exam time. It's exam time. And I'm going to ask you some questions to see just how much you know about me. So God's going to question Job in three main areas of creation. And if there's one thing, just one thing, that speaks of God's sovereignty, it's his creation. So the first series of questions God's going to ask Job deal with, can you explain my creation? And that's going to be chapter 38, verses 1 through 38. The second question he's going to, series of questions he's going to ask him deal with, can you provide for my creation? That's chapter 38, to verse 39, and then 39 to 30. And then third, he's going to ask him, can you control my creation? And that's chapter 40, verse 6 to 41, 34. And then I know there's some Blakes in there. Those of you guys are quick with math. Um, those missing verses are filled in by Job actually getting a few words in edgewise here. So God asked Job, where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? And listen, that's the question, isn't it? That's the one. God doesn't really have to ask any other questions except that one. That question alone stop us all, all of us in our tracks. It leave us speechless, defenseless, because not one of us can answer that question. Any one of us here present when God created? No. We, were, we weren't even dust of the earth yet. We hadn't been formed from the dust of the earth. And I want you to think about that for a minute. So you stay humble. The same elements that make us human are found in the dust of the earth. So we really aren't that special. But I want to pause for a moment and think about who it is that's speaking. It's the Lord speaking, right? Now the Lord, in the ancient Hebrew, it's God's covenant name, Jehovah. Now, we haven't heard that name since the first two chapters of Job. It's the same name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked God, whom shall I say sent me? And God said, I am who I am. 
I am God, and there's none like me. There's none before me, and there's none like me, and there will never be one after me. I am God. And that is the same name, Jehovah God, that he uses to establish his covenant with his people. It's the name he uses when he addresses Job. I am God. Who are you? That is humbling, isn't it? God's saying to Job, I created the heavens and the earth. I created them in six days. Where were you while that was happening? Job couldn't answer that question. And there's not a person in this room this morning that can answer that question. How could we question God's ways, his works, or his wisdom when we lack the ability to even explain his works, his ways, and his wisdom? We don't know how any of this stuff works because we weren't there. Now, we figured out some things since then, right? But God has an intimate knowledge of how things work because he was there from the very beginning. He created the universe and everything in it. You know, when a Marine is handed a rifle, and don't, if you're ever talking to a Marine, don't ever call it a gun. Right, Paul? Right? Raphael, don't ever call it a gun. It is a rifle. And so he or she is trained how to take that rifle apart and put it back together backwards and forwards. So they are, have an intimate knowledge of how that rifle works. Well, as intimate a knowledge that that Marine has on how that rifle works, how much more so the one who designed it? How much more so the one who drew the plans for it? The person who knows every screw and every part of that rifle and knows where it goes and how it functions. Man can study the universe, and we have studied it over, over the years, over the centuries, and man has an intimate knowledge of how it works. But no one knows, like God, who created it, how every detail of the universe works and what function it serves. Job thought he knew about God but he was about to discover just how much he doesn't know about God. Now, Job did have some basic understanding of how things worked. He wasn't completely ignorant of the universe. He said back in chapter 26, God stretches out the, the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. I think there's one culture out there that believed at one time that the earth was held up by a strong man, right, or by an elephant on the back of an elephant. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy theories. But what Job didn't know was how God made that happen. He didn't know because he wasn't there when God formed the earth and set the cornerstone of the earth in place. He wasn't in the bleachers with the angels, with the sons of God, over those six days of creation as they oohed and odd every time God created stuff. You know, I can imagine that there was a flyer in heaven, because we use flyers in our bulletins, so it's kind of, that's where we got the idea. And the, and the flyer said, hey, God's going to create some stuff. And the angels are saying, well, I don't know, what, what stuff is he going to create? We've never seen him create anything before. What stuff is he creating? And God created stuff, and they oohed and they odd as that creation was being formed. God knows that no one but him can answer these questions that he's asking Job. God's the architect of creation. He formed the earth. He laid the cornerstone. 
He devised and, and designed the measurements so that everything fit together perfectly. God designed the earth that we lived on, and he designed it in a way that makes life possible on this earth. It's a design that we take for granted all the time. A design that includes things like the moon, for instance. You ever thought about the moon other than just looking at it and how beautiful it is? Did you know that because the earth has a slight tilt to it that we could teeter like a top if it, when it rotates? And that would cause drastic shifts in our weather over time. But the moon is there to stabilize the orbit of the earth. So it's, it's more than just a pretty face. Something else we take for granted in God's design is our position in the universe. You know, someone once said it's location, location, location. And listen, that was never more important than where we're located in our solar system. If we were just a little closer to the sun, we would all burn up. If we were just a little further away, we would all freeze to death. And because of our climate, the water that's needed to sustain life exists here on this planet in liquid form. And we have our neighbors, the other planets close to us, especially Jupiter, that protects us from asteroid strikes. All of that was done by design. None of that just happened. It was all done by his design. And another design feature that we forget about is that we have the right ingredients for life here on this earth. Liquid water, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, all of those things are needed to sustain life. And we have them in abundance here on this planet. God created and placed every single thing in the perfect place in our solar system. He gave us the perfect atmosphere. He gave us the perfect building blocks for life. He gave us the perfect system to sustain that life. God knew what we would need before he even created us. Before he formed the earth. How much more does he know what we need before we even ask? Jesus said, therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things you need of before you ask him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Now I want to read a passage of scripture for you. It's a little long, so bear with me. But I really believe someone here this morning needs to hear this. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, it, is not life more than food and, bo and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows what you need, knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. Matthew 6, 25-33. So the creator of the universe tells us, his children, not to worry. 
He's got this. But more importantly, he's got you. So we're in good hands, aren't we? Look at verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb. When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. So he asked Job, where were you when I fixed the limits of the seas? Now to see how the seas, the oceans were formed, and when those boundaries were set, we have to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 tells us, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And King Solomon wrote this. When he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Proverbs 8.29 God said this to his prophet Jeremiah, Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made this sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier that cannot, it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. Jeremiah 5.22 So where were you, Job, when I created the seas? When I said, you can come no further than here, and here is where your proud waves must stop. Where were you, Job, when I, did, when I gave that command? And God makes a point here to remind Job who's in control, who's sovereign. Who's sovereign over creation? You know, we, we see that illustrated for us in Jesus when he calmed the Sea of Galilee. Mark's Gospel, we learn, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm, Mark 4.39. So the disciples, who knew a little bit about Scripture, this had to hit them right between the eyes. They had to think, man, I, 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 I know I read that somewhere else before. I, I, I think I read that in Jeremiah or Proverbs. The disciples must have thought about these verses that I just read. Because here's their response. They were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. They knew that only God could control the seas. And so they're looking at Jesus and thinking, this must be God in the flesh. Jesus calmed the storm that day. And what that reminds us of is that sometimes he will calm the storm around us. And sometimes he calms the storm within us. Look at verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked should, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal 
and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uprised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. So, next series of questions. Job's not doing very well here, is he? This is an exam, and so far he hasn't been able to get one answer. Not one answer. Not right, wrong, otherwise he just hasn't been able to answer. So God asks him, do you know the extent of the earth? And so this part of the exam is a four-part. Each question is worth 25 points. So you can only, you only, you can only miss one and, not, and fail, not fail rather. And so the four parts are this. How does the sun set and rise? How deep is the sea? What happens when you die? And how wide is the earth? How many, of you got, how many did you get right? Just one, right? Probably one. what happens when you die? I mean, we can figure that one out. Hopefully. We know, where we, we know where we're going. So are you ready to take this exam? Here we go. How does the sun set and rise, he asks him. Have you ever commanded the morning dawn? Have you ever told the sun to rise in the east and set in the west? Have you, Job? Have you ever done that? Have you ever caused the light to shine in the morning? Now, again, we have to go back to the beginning to see how we to see how things that we take for granted, like the sunsets and sunrises and the dawn and the evening, came about. Genesis chapter one, verses three through four, we read: Then God said, "Let there be light." And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. But there's more. God created a separation between light and the dark, and he used that separation to create the seasons, the days, and the years. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven, and divide the day and the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens, to give light on the earth, and it was so. God created. And the angels are in the stands, ooing and eyeing at every light he hangs in the sky. Now that Hebrew word used in Genesis for created is bara. And bara means God created something out of nothing. Created something out of nothing. He created it all. And then he tells his creation, not only did he create, then he tells his creation how it should function, where the sun should be at a certain time in the day, how far the seas can come and no farther. He tells his creation when it's day and when it's night. He tells the cold winds of winter, the gentle winds of spring, the hot winds of summer, and the chilly winds of fall when and where they should blow. God also tells Job that the light takes hold of the edge of the earth and shakes the wicked out. Now that's just a very poetic way of describing how light dispels the dark. As the light dawns, it causes the wicked to flee because they like to do their works under the cover of darkness. And Jesus said that there would be men who would love the darkness rather than the light. You know, listen, as, his, as the time for his return draws near, the evil deeds that are being done in this world are going to begin to spill over into the day. And we're seeing that even now, aren't we? 
We see evil that was once hidden, now done right out in the open, done right out in the daylight. And we live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. And things that we see going on today, listen, I hate to tell you, I hate to break the bad news to you, but you got to be prepared for this. What you see happening in the world today is only going to get worse as the time draws near. Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So as the day draws near to his return, this day is going to grow, the days are going to grow darker and darker and darker. The love of man is going to grow colder and colder and colder. And so we have an opportunity now, while it's day, to share the gospel message. While the light of Christ still shines in us and through us, while we still have freedom to share it. Amen? The second part of the question that God asked Job is, how deep is the sea? Have you ever walked the depths of the sea? Have you, have you ever searched it out? Even today, we're not sure just how deep the ocean is. In 1872, a British Navy ship named the Challenger embarked on a four-year voyage across the oceans to really learn more about what the oceans held. And so one of the deepest zones that they discovered was in the Western Pacific. We now know it as the Mariana Trench. trench rather. And they discovered that it stretches for 1,580 miles. Now scientists today have used sonar to measure the depth of the Mariana Trench and discovered that it's only about 36,037 feet deep, which is roughly about seven miles. Easy swim if you're in shape. They call that now the Challenger Deep in honor of that crew that discovered it. At that depth, there is a bone-crushing pressure of over 15,000 pounds per square inch. You would pop like a boil in seconds. You like that imagery. Listen, there may be places that we have yet to discover in the ocean because we're just beginning to discover about the ocean. So there may be places that are even deeper than that. We just don't know. We don't understand everything there is to understand about the seas. And so the seas still hold for us a lot of treasures and mysteries that we have yet to discover. Then God asked Job, what happens when you die? Have the gates and the doors of the shadow of death been revealed to you? Now, God uses this terminology elsewhere in the Bible. In Psalm 107, 18, we read, Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Psalm 9, verse 13 says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, who lift me up from the gates of death. So God's asking Job, do you understand what happens when we transition out of this life into death? Do you understand what that process is? You know, Jesus uses the same terminology, the terminology of the gates of death. He uses that in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus tells us that the entrance to life, to eternal life, is narrow. And, and 
the picture that he paints for us is that it doesn't have to be a very wide gate because not many will be entering through that way. Think about how wide the gate is that leads to your front walkway to go up to your front door. It's not very wide, is it? I mean, it's only a couple feet, just wide enough for one person to walk through. And that's as wide as it needs to be. Now consider how wide the gate would be that leads into your driveway or up the road, leads to the road that leads to your house. It would have to be much wider, right, to accommodate a car carrying carloads of people up that road. So it stands to reason. The greater the use, the wider the gate. And that's what Jesus is saying. Broad is the way that leads to destruction because many go in that gate. Listen, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it by his death and resurrection. But sadly, there are many who still rejected his life-saving atonement for their sins. They rejected his sacrifice. They rejected the fact that he paid the price for our sins on the cross. They've rejected that. That he took our place. He was a propitiation for us. He took our place on that cross. He exchanged our tarnished record for his perfect record. But yet many still reject him. The world is missing this. They're missing the fact that it's because of his finished work on the cross because of his resurrection from the tomb, that no one, no one has to go through that wide gate. No one. But God in his sovereignty knows that many will choose to enter in that way. The choice of the gates is ours. We can choose what's behind gate number one, eternal life, or eternal death rather. We could choose what's behind gate number two, eternal life. The choice of gates is simple, isn't it? It's either gate number one or gate number two. What's not so simple is which decision of gates do we choose? Which, which gate do we go in? I mean, the, God made it easy for us. We only have two choices. The decision gets harder when we have to choose. For many, it's a difficult decision because to choose the gate that leads to eternal life, that gate is Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one enters through that narrow gate into eternal life except through him. To make the decision to follow Jesus is a hard decision for a lot of people. Luke said, Jesus said rather in Luke's gospel, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, Jesus isn't referring to works when he says strive. He's saying that all who follow him, all that follow him through that narrow gate, is going to face trials and tribulations in this life. It may even bring persecution upon you. At the very least, it could bring rejection from your family and friends. And that's why Jesus said to go in that way, to go the narrow way, it's hard. It's difficult. Now the Greek word used for strive is agonizomi. And it means to struggle. We get our word agonized from that word. And for some, it is an agonizing decision to decide whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. But listen, he's the only way. There is no other way. There's either the wide path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to eternal life. There's no other way. There's no other choice. 
But for some, that's an agonizing decision, as crazy as that sounds. The pride, the fear of rejection keep them from, from making the choice to follow Jesus. But listen, understand that it is a choice. It's a choice. And they make that choice whether or not to follow him. And if they make the choice not to follow him, they make that choice at their own peril. And the fourth part of this question is, how wide is the earth? So God asked Job, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Do you understand how wide the earth is? Do you know the extent of it? Now, that's probably the only question that we could answer today with some accuracy, but we can only answer that question because of satellite mapping, right? And to find that answer, we actually had to go into space and look at the earth from God's perspective. So from that perspective, we have determined that the surface of the earth is 196,940,400 square miles. And the diameter of the earth is roughly 7,913 square miles with a land mass covering about 54,807,420 square miles. But listen, in Job's day, that would have been impossible for him to answer that question or anyone else around at that time. And let's face it, if God were to ask me that question today and said, listen, just give me the answer off the top of your head. Don't Google it. Don't look it up. I need to know the answer now. I'd have to say, Lord, the earth is wide. It's just wide. I know it's bigger than a bread box, Lord. There's no way I can answer this question with any accuracy. But God can because he created it and made it the perfect width and the perfect diameter. Amen? Look at verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths of its home. Do you know it? Because you were born then? Or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow? No, I went one verse too far. So the next question he asks is, do you know, Job, where light originates from? What's the source and listen, this is a hard question. Scientists to this day struggle with that answer. They still debate what the origin of light is. But listen, it's a simple answer, isn't it? So you're all scientists here this morning. You can all, everyone here can apply to NASA when, NASA when you leave here. Where's the answer to where light originated? God. It's a simple, it's in a book. They're just looking in the wrong book. It's in the Bible. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's where it came from. That's where it originated. That's the source. And, and we know as Christians that Jesus is the source of our light. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John wrote, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So Jesus is the source of the light that shines in us and through us. Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount that we now are the lights in this dark world that's under the sway of the enemy. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's just a couple of ways of how we can be that light. First of all, don't be like the world around us. The world we live in is full of lies, it's full of hate, it's full of confusion, because it's under the sway of the enemy. But we're told to cast off the works of darkness, to put on the armor of light, Romans 13, 12. We become the light in the darkness by not seeking the desires of the world around us. We become the light in the darkness when we don't live or act the way the world does. We become the light in the darkness when we put on Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. And then secondly, and this is pretty simple, let that light shine. Don't put it under a basket. Don't hide the light that emanates from us, but let that light shine for all to see. And one way we do that is through our works, through our good works. Our works are just one way that that light shines bright for everyone else to see. Our light shines through our works, and it points others to the source of the light in us, and that's Christ Jesus, which in turn gives glory to God. And that's the key to all of this. When our light is shining, it shouldn't bring attention to us. It shouldn't shine on us. It shouldn't be a spotlight on us. It should cast attention, cast light on, shine the spotlight on Jesus. So God gets the glory. Look at verse 22. Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause, the spring, and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. So God says something very intriguing here. He is a reserve of hail in a storehouse. And he's got it there. He's saving it for times of trouble, for days of battle and war. Now in the past... God has used this against his enemies, or against the enemies of his people. Against the Egyptians, we read, So there was hail and fire mingled with hail, so, every, so, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Egypt, uh, Exodus, rather, 9.24. We know that God's going to use hail again in the future against the enemy of his people. Revelation 16 says... Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Man blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Ezekiel 38, which is a prophetic chapter in the Bible, And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, Great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. So I find it interesting 
that God tells Job what he has in store for the enemies of his people. But then he asked Job, do you know who lays out the paths of the lightning? Do you know who created the channels for the rain? Do you ever see a real heavy downpour? It looks like the rain's coming down in channels, right? I mean, it just looks like they're in all perfect little rows. And God says, do you understand who does this? Do you understand who sends the rain into the wilderness, into the desert, where there is no one? Where at least there's no human life. Why would God send rain into the desert where there's no human life? Because there's life there. There's other life there other than human life. He knows because he created them. He created the animals that dwell in the desert, the insects, the creeping lizards, and even the plant life. He knows that they all need rain, so he sends them rain. And what we learn from that is that God cares for all of his creation, all of us. And I want you to think about that the next time you're in a situation and, and, it's, and it's, it's threatening to overwhelm you. Remember that God takes care of every single detail, even providing for the little sprigs of grass in the wilderness. Nothing escapes his notice. Now, we may forget to water the plant in the room next door to us, but God never forgets about his creation. Nothing is too insignificant for God, from the tiny ant to the human being. We all matter to God, and God provides for his creation. So God asked Job another interesting question. Do you know if the rain has a father? Now it turns out it does. You know that those little droplets of water we talked about last week that, that collect in the clouds and eventually form rain? Well, that's activated by dust particles in the air. And so we could say that the rain is fathered by the dust particles in the air. And then he asked Job, do you know who formed the ice and the frost? And so Job's got to be speechless at this point. I mean, he hasn't been able to answer one of these questions because, just like us, he wasn't there at creation. But God does know because he's the creator. He's the sustainer and the controller of all creation. He knows what needs to happen. He knows what needs to take place, what action has to happen to cause a reaction. For instance, God allows the dust particles to gather and to cause the droplets of rain in the clouds. That's the action. Well, the reaction to that would be what? Come on, scientists. Rain. Rain. You got it, right? God causes the seasons to change, the winds, the cold winds of winter to blow. That's the action. And the reaction to that would be the ice and the frost. That's the reaction. So when we consider what God has done and continues to do, listen to this. We should be overwhelmed by God, not by our problems. Let me say that again. We should be overwhelmed by God, not by our problems. Look at verse 31. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or lose the, loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the Mazareth in its season? And that's just the consolations. Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? So God asked Job a different question now. God not only asked Job if he knows how things began, he now asked him, do you know how to control these things? Can you place the stars in the sky? Can you put them where they should go? 
Can you control, can you control them according to the seasons? Can you change the night sky at different times of the year so that different constellations are visible at certain seasons? Can you lead the great bear and its cubs? And he's talking about the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Interesting enough, the Big Dipper, did you guys know this? The Big Dipper points to the Little Dipper, to the star. There's a star there called Polaris, or better known as the North Star. Listen, if someone were to ask me how old I was when I learned this, I'd say I'm today old. I'm today old. I had no idea that this was going on. But this is just another amazing fact about God's creation because what it tells us is that the stars revolve around the throne of heaven. God controls every aspect of this. He's established the laws of physics and astronomy. Now, man is taking credit for all of that, but it was God who established that. God knows all of this and how it works because he created it. And not only did he create it, he has dominion over it. Verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings where they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens and clumps and the clods cling together? Do you know who gives wisdom? And listen, this is a lesson that all mankind needs to understand. We cannot control God's creation. We can't. Even with all our technology, all our advancements in science, all our our satellites, our understanding of climatology and weather patterns, we cannot control the weather. Although we keep trying to do it, don't we? Listen, I found this interesting little fact. I don't know if they're still in, in existence, but in 2015, there was a company in the UK called Oliver's Travels. And that's kind of what attracted me to the first place, because this is Oliver. But for a modest fee of just $150,000, they will seed the clouds over where your wedding is going to be held so that a few days before the wedding event, it rains then and not on your big day. It's just 150 grand in addition to the 100,000 you pay for the wedding. They put dust or something like dust particles in, they seed the cloud for you. They drop it out, out of a plane and it causes it to rain. Listen, we're playing with fire when we try to control God's creation. It's not going to work out well for us. Nimrod and the people of the land of Shinar discovered that the hard way, didn't they? In the Tower of Babel, God confused their language when they tried to be like God. It didn't work out very well for Satan, although he still thinks he can pull a victory out here. It didn't work out well for him when he is still attempting to be like God. He wants to be God. So we're playing with fire when we try to control God's creation. And we're going to pay the price for that one day. Let's finish up verse 39 through 41. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to to lie in wait or provide food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food. 
So he's basically asking Job now, can you take care of my creation? Can you provide for my animals? And the sad fact is that if the animals of the world were solely our responsibility, they'd all be on the endangered species list. Because we're not very good stewards of what God's blessed us with, are we? Now, could you answer any of these questions? I mean, even with Google, we, we can make some educated guesses here, right, about how creation works. But listen, without windows in a weather station, we can't even get the weather right. I thought I was going to wake up to a snowstorm this morning. If you want to know what the weather is, open the window, because that's more accurate than turning on the news. God knows all, because he created all. So instead of asking God why, we should just trust in his sovereignty and rest in the knowledge that he knows the beginning from the end. So that we're reminded not to lean on our own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge him, acknowledge the fact that he's God. Trust in him, and he will lead and guide us. Amen? So I'm going to call the worship team up now, and we're going to have a time of communion, and then we'll close out in worship, and then we'll... Um, Enjoy an agape feast, and then hopefully you guys could be back here for Super Bowl Sunday later on this evening. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for your creation, Lord, that you are who you are, that there's nothing that escapes your notice from the most intimate, tiniest of details, from the smallest of molecules in the world, Lord, and, and just... It amazes us that you are cognizant of all of that. Who is man, Lord, that you would be mindful of him? As I picture you just kneeling down and, and listening with an attentive ear to your creation, Lord. That you are involved in every single aspect. And for our brother Job, who cried out that you weren't even with him, Lord, we discover that you are with us in more ways than we could ever imagine. Help us to understand that, Lord. It's not just the times you help us through trouble, although you do that as well. It's all of creation, Lord, what you've done to just sustain life here on this planet. How amazing is that? How blessed are we? So, Lord, we pray that you go before us now in Jesus' name. Amen.